Welcome to the Stories Are Soul Food podcast, presented by Cannonball Books, the kids' fiction imprint of Cannon Press. Met a ghost of a king on the road when I first fell. Fire burning to my knees, to my knees I fell. Met a ghost of a king on the road. Thought we'd do a little parenting detour. Parenting detour. Yeah. <laughs> We've touched on some previous times. This is Stories Are Soul Food, the parenting edition. Yeah. Or parenting a- appendix. I think it's about characters, though. Okay. That's really our, that's our on ramp here. Okay. Uh, that's I, how we justify this? That's how we justify our foray into parenting. Two questions. And they're kind of the same question, I guess. But the, the separation is, what is going on when a parent's home is completely controlled by the kids? Like the kid emotions. Mm. And I see that even with people who know that's bad. And then similarly... Does, is that what's at play with teenagers as well, who rule their parents' home? So the question is, a, is, a, is a, So describe, describe what you're seeing. So I'm not saying so much it's the kid who, um, you know, the parent asks him to do something and he screams because he doesn't want to, right? So I'm not talking straight up temper tantrums right now. I'm, I just, I'm speaking from experience. I remember <laughs> times when you'd be talking or I guess everything that happens in your home is driven by what and how your kid feels or what and how your kid wants. And almost there's a tentativeness to the parenting. And I feel like I see that in Christian homes, perhaps more often than I do in secular homes. It's almost like the secular parents, sure, they may have a screamer, but they don't, they're, they're a little more decisive when it comes to parenting. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that they are. I think you're probably not in very many secular homes. That is for sure true. (laughs) That is for sure true. It's like when you're, when you're trying to raise characters, that's our foray into this, right? Yeah. We want our kids to be good characters. Uh, We want them to live good stories and be good characters in their scenes. Um. are you talking about things like mom just never cooking certain things for dinner? Are you talking about kids' yeah. tastes just kind of becoming the authoritative tastes of the house? Or I think I'm just saying that there are at, at times the parents don't want it, – it's almost like a parent doesn't know that they're the one in charge. And I realize that's kind of vague. It, I guess the connection might be to jump to teenagers where you see the teenagers being the person that everybody tiptoes around in the house. Mm. The house has no internal. And, and then if you, if you back that up, you see that there's so much reactivity that is in the home and in the parenting and not a lot of decisive forward movement. The home doesn't have a culture. So perhaps that's, that's the segue into this. How do you, how does, uh, um, what is going wrong if if you're characterized by that uh, that tentativeness? Am I still being too vague to be helpful for you? Yeah, it's not terribly concrete, but I can say let's name <laughs> names, Brian. Um, who exactly? Who are you? To, who, whom? About whom do you speak? Um, I would say that I've I've seen a number of times uh, in my life where parents and children are competing for who gets to whose feels get to steer the place. Mm-hmm. And I have absolutely seen that that mom who's just downtrodden and lives in fear of the moods of her children. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of uh, usually younger, not, I mean, it can happen at the teen years too, but yeah, uh, there's a kind of negotiation that happens that's, that's unfortunate um, early when people try to prevent uh, a kid from ever encountering, you know, a temptation, you know, from steering mm-hmm. around and trying to prevent, uh, pre- prevent tantrums, prevent bad deeds from happening by not pro- quote unquote provoking. Okay. Uh, and so you see the, the kids misbehaviors ruling the roost without even having to misbehave. You know, it just, there we go. You know, that that, that like is what I'm talking about. People are constantly accommodating and steering around anything that might trigger yeah. that the child so I, into bad behavior. And that triggering could be like not going to the park. That trigger could be not playing a video game, not watching something. It, there's a lot of different triggers. But mostly what I see um, most most frequently is I see parents trying to convince their kids of something. Mm-hmm. 
which is when they're little is just a huge mistake. Uh, and I think I've talked about that here before, you know, where just mom right. is trying to get uh, a four-year-old son to agree with her mm-hmm. instead of to obey. Yeah. Like I need him to agree and he is withholding judgment with his moods and tantrums or whatever. <laughs> and if you have, if you have well, well-behaved kids who have learned not to throw the tantrum, they still can sit in judgment and control you, but without the, you know, without the tantrum. Um, yeah. I guess I, I, I am thinking of, I don't have any particular people in mind right now, except sure. Brian, <laughs> except everyone. Um, that idea of not making your kid be quiet and sit still in church because you know there'd be a, a fight, I think is exactly what you're talking about. That's what I'm thinking of examples of. You, okay. you you loosen the standard enough that your kid doesn't really buck it, but they're still not the kind of person that you want to be around. I don't know if that's okay. the right way to describe it. So your kid's a character that you don't enjoy. <laughs> I, yeah, and that seems to be the m- most sad thing possible. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's in those moments. What you need is is what's known as a reign of terror, <laughs> and that reign of terror needs to start with uh, the parents, with yourselves, before it ever reaches the kids. But there's a certain I have I have three very I have I have five very unique children. I have five children who all have their own skills and all have very strong personalities. And I'm not shocked that my kids have strong personalities because <laughs> I I did, and so does my wife. But we also have three dogs that also have strong personalities. And the dogs, it's kind of interesting because if you if you take a, a German short-haired pointer and you train them well, they are a joy. Mm-hmm. Like they're just they're yeah. a joy. If you take them and you don't, they're the worst. <laughs> you know, they're, they're just the absolute worst. Yeah. And the freedom that comes from being a well-trained dog for the dog, like the dog who is well-trained has a much happier life. And if I could, so before we moved uh, out to our land, before we built, we, we owned it, we bought it. Um, May 15th, 2015, 51515. I will always remember. Uh, every day I'd come home from work and mo- I'd say at least at least four times a week and whistle the dogs. The dogs would come out front, sit on the front porch, and they have to wait. And then I open the tailgate in my truck. And then I when I tell them, okay, they come just whipping down jump at the back of the truck and we drive out to the out to the land and dogs that are smart. They know English. They hear words like the land. Uh-huh. They hear my wife say, do you want to take the dogs out? They know, they know exactly what's happening. They're very excited about it all. If they're behaving well, they can ride in the back of the truck and go run around a hundred acres, you know, and if they're behaving badly, they can't, uh-huh. you know, if I can trust the dog to be recalled, yeah, you know, that I can call this dog back when it's, smelled game and it's going to return then we can go out and they can run around and there's all this freedom of if you can't trust them that world the world starts shrinking smaller and smaller and smaller yeah and and you need it to shrink until you can trust them completely in that world and then it starts to re-expand and so if you are in a place where the kids are living in a tiny little universe like they they live in a in a very small little world and they're in this small ecosystem. It better be because they're very young and they're learning. You know, they're learning things quickly. Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the things that I always um I, I passed on but talked to my kids about when they were little is that when I tell you something outside, we're somewhere, then it's it you have to assume it's life or death and there will be no questions. There's a immediate obedience, and then then we will have a conversation. Obey first, and then I, then I can explain. But if I'm yelling at you to come here, if I tell you to come here, just like if if I've got my dogs out on the land and I, you know, yeah. I'm trying to recall them, and if I know that you will immediately come back to me, we can go places, we can go do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a fair amount of playful regimentation 
in our house where, you know, I stole this from my, my brother-in-law and older sister. I'd make my kids form up. I'd yell, form up, and they'd have to hit the wall in order of age and I'll stand up. You know, their backs <laughs> to the wall and they're there, sound off. If I if I'm not looking at them and I hate tell them to sound off and I hear them you know yell one two three four five behind me I'm like okay I've got all five uh-huh. you know it's like I just need need this now why it's not because I'm Captain Von Trapp and I want my home like this yeah or it's kids because, are dogs you know <laughs> yeah no it's because we wanted to go road trip from London to Rome you know it's like this is yeah we wanted to be able to go have a high stake situation where yeah we got robbed and we you know hit a car in Monaco and gypsies are trying to, you know, lure my children into taking toys and in Rome and all, all the chaos that happens from taking, uh, nine kids. We had four at the time and my sister had five, nine mm-hmm. kids to Rome on a road trip from London and back. The, the stakes there are so much higher when we're wandering around Luxembourg, when we're wandering around German cities and they're little, I need to know that they will just, you know, they'll, they'll trust me and just do what I say right now. And if yeah. we were just, uh, walking to the neighbor's yard, the stakes are lower and you just kind of regulate behavior. Uh, so it really, I think a lot of it depends on what you want them to be able to do. And so my kids were able to have a grand adventure when they were young and, you know, it's, and we worked for that. You know, like we worked for that level of, mm. of freedom. We wouldn't have, like we would, we wouldn't have pushed for that le- level of quick obedience and regimentation if we were just keeping their world tiny. And so if their world's small, there's less responsibility. And if you get them really faithful with that little bit of responsibility, expand it, yeah. like expand it, constantly expand it, give them more, give them more, give them more. And, and let them learn how to function in more and more mature ways so that, you know, by the time we're college age, my son lives in Manhattan, you know, it's like, this is our relationship's great. His self-discipline is great with focus is great. Like that's a really high, that's a really high level of difficulty and high risk. Um, And he doesn't live in Manhattan because he turned 18 and I lost control of him. Right. You know, he lives there because we talked through it and we thought about decisions and what he was going to study and what would be good for him as a human being and as a character. And that is why he lives there. And so there was a, you know, the decision was made together. Yeah. Um, Being away from home is like the big downside. He's not trying to get away. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's part of the cost of, of trying to accomplish something as a, as a character. So. Anyway, I don't know if that really addresses it, but I think the, when I see families where no one's being faithful, parents and kids are being unfaithful in small ecosystems, what we know from scripture is that they will be unfaithful in large ones. Yeah. What you're practicing for is unfaithfulness when they're in junior high and unfaithfulness when they're in high school and unfaithfulness when they're in college, because that world is going to keep expanding. Yeah. So their ecosystem is going to continue to expand. Uh, and if they don't get really good at self-regulating and obeying and uh, submitting their, uh, their emotions, submitting their emotions to, um, well, their own control and to what is biblical, then there's, there's no hope for the next promotion. Yeah. And what I've, what I've noticed too is, you know, playing with that when you're not, it feels like you're not doing it right. When, when you see someone who's not handling the size of the child, the ability of the child with the size of the space they're in is either you have the parents emotionally volatile or you have the kids emotionally volatile and their parents are constantly having to bail from situations that should be fun. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and that's it, the, the making of a lot of family comedies too. It was like, right. We're yeah. trying to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's when dad wants everybody to have fun and it all goes wrong because everybody's sinning and having a bad attitude about something. Right. <laughs> okay good. so but the the if they're bad characters in your living room like yeah then they're going to be bad in the front yard and if they're bad in the front yard they're going to be worse when they're over at a friend's house yeah they're over if they're bad at a friend's house they're going to be worse at school yeah if they're bad at school it just keeps it keeps going so um when you and th- this is 
there are plenty of OCD regimented parents who, and I can't say this strongly enough, absolutely ruin their children. Yeah. Who just. Because you are not going to have your kid in your house forever. Yeah. There are plenty of very bossy britches, moms and dads who are like, you will stand up straight. You will listen. You will say, yes, sir. You will not have a mind of your own. You will have no opinions. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm just going to be so wooden and so hard that that obviously is awful. And it's going to go wrong in, in many, many ways. Yeah. It's just bad. But most of the time, um, most of the time parents are very relaxed and giving and suffering. They're constantly, they're constantly suffering and juggling to try to have Johnny be not upset and go to bed kind of happy. And yeah, you know, um, and I, I think I probably got this from my dad, but we we would cite Article 17 in our house of like, if you're going to be fussy here, you can be fussy in your bed. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Article 17. It's like you're in beds. Nice. Bed, you're that's it. If you're going to fuss, you can fuss in bed, and that's yeah, that's it. But it's when you as a parent are not thinking of regimentation as something that's an outworking of your own personality. It's not something that you instinctively do or want or desire, and you're not doing it to your kids for your sake, for your own psychological sake, you're doing it for their sake. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're preparing them and trying to do it right. for them. It's an added sacrifice. I'm not instinctively a regimented person. Like yeah. That's not uh, who I am, you know, in terms of, I don't, I don't have a garage, let alone have everything, you know, it's sticky, spot. sticky labeled <laughs> in my garage, you know, and I've seen those, you know, I've seen those, those houses and those garages that are just German yeah. to maximum stereotype. So the most, more German than German, it just all the way, yeah. every kid, there's a parking spot painted on the concrete floor in the garage and every kid's bike has to be parked yeah. in the center of that parking spot. And I've, I've seen all that. And I don't like it. Yeah. Um, but when I have really tried to tighten things up with the kids, at different points where it's like it was getting loose or mom couldn't trust them to come in to the grocery store, you know, with her or right. those, those kinds of things. It's like, well, man, do you want to, do you want this kid to be just strapped in a car seat stuck in the parking lot, you know, waiting, or do you want the kid to be right enjoying life with their mother having fun? Yeah. And so you, you try to crack down and, and teach them that control for their sake. Yeah. I remember Christy and I having that conversation, especially when we were early parents trying to figure out like, what does these, le- what do these levers do? You know? And that question of, should my kid be able to do this with me and not have it be really hard was really helpful yeah. for us. And I felt like something, when you ask it that way, the answer was no, duh, our kids should be yeah. able to go to the store without it being. Yep. They should be able to go on a dump run with dad. They should be able right. to do these things and yeah. not be right a, a, a drama. They should be, be able to survive in our, so you're saying you test it out. It has to, they have to be able to survive in the backyard. Without it being yep. a total drama explosion. Yeah. The, in the living room when mom's there. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I'll tell, tell a tale of abuse. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My, uh, my wife's back went out early on. She had an old surfing injury and uh, her back was horrific uh, early in, in our marriage. And I had to move my desk home when I started, I set up my desk in the family playroom, like in the kids' playroom. And it was... It was like their universe was this back room in our in our house. Our house was not big, and there was this lean-to porch that had been converted to like a TV playroom, and it was right off the kitchen, and and pretty small. And I set up a sawhorse desk in there, and it was, you know, just full of toys and one recliner and an old beat-up couch, and that's where they would watch Winnie the Pooh and mm-hmm. and play and stuff like that. And I had to be there because my wife couldn't stand up. You know, she couldn't, she couldn't get out of a chair without help at that time. And we just had our third child and the girls, our third was Amira and she was 12 months behind Lucia. So we had Irish twins. And so I had a one-year-old girl and a newborn baby girl that my wife has. And then we have a toddler and Rory. And in this back room, uh, Rory realized that his mom couldn't do anything. And oh, I had yeah. left to teach and so I was gone and and she was stuck. And so I had barricaded this room. So my wife was like in a recliner, can't stand up, holding a baby with a one-year-old and 
you know, and a toddler bouncing around her. <laughs> oh, man. And it's like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be back. What a I'll, I'll be back soon. And Rory started torturing his one-year-old sister with something. And, and this is one of the, one of my proudest moments of, of Heather's parenting. <laughs> uh, I, and I mean that seriously. So Rory was torturing Lucia. Lucia was being sad. Heather was trying to tell Rory to stop it. Rory's like, you can't stand up, mom. You know, like, what are you going to do? <laughs> She picks up a wooden block that she can reach from the recliner and just drilled him in the forehead <laughs> from across the, from across the room. Now it's like she couldn't she couldn't stand. Now I came home to a very sad wife because it hit him at the corner, dead center, high right right below his hairline, split his skin, and he's bleeding <laughs> profusely. And I come home and Rory's bleeding and he's sad and Heather's even sadder because she hit him and she was yeah. feeling so bad. And I'm just like, he was being mean to his sister. I mean, this is, you, this is the only thing you could do to defend Lucia from that oppression. Yeah. So when there were little, little rugrats and we were talking about puppies, like you're talking about a newborn, a one-year-old and a toddler, that is a zoo. Right. You know, that is yeah. a, that is a zoo of, yeah. of constant, um, of, of constant maintenance and trying to discipline. As it's like a puppy, you know, it's like you're still housebreaking them and everything else. Right. When you're potty trained and you move past that and and things are going well, they have to self-regulate. They just have to. Right. And your goal is self-regulation. And if you think of them, your kids as trees and you're the stakes, like you're going to be constantly pulling, constantly pulling while the trunk is set itself, like while it gets strong enough. If you if you let go too quickly, it just goes over. And mm -hmm. if you hold on too long, then they're actually weaker. You know, it's like, you don't yeah. want them just to like the stake to be this giant thing. Like dad is this big, strong tree. And this little tree next to it is just relying entirely on that strength and never gets its yeah. own strength. That's a different kind of problem. So your goal is to be like constantly let them be in the wind, like feeling the wind that they can resist. And it should be just, yeah. Just at that level, they can, they can get stronger and get stronger and resist and resist. Um, and I do I do remember when we were deciding to go visit a family in Oxford and just do this big European road trip with them. The little notice that we had that we were doing it, I, I got really focused. I was like, okay, let's really get tight. Let's get really tight with the kids. There is, there's no warnings. There's no second warning. You get told one time. And if you're not obeying, then you're going to go away in the bathroom. It's mm -hmm. like, and this is, we had the conversation. This is what we're doing. We're prepping for this trip. Yeah. Because when we're on the road and anything could happen, we need to trust you. Yeah. We need to trust that you can control yourself this way. And it went awesome. You know, it really, I mean, they went awesome. The trip was total chaos, <laughs> but it was a blast because the chaos was not child misbehavior. The chaos yeah. was yeah. all external. So. But anyway, that's that's the that's a very long kind of rambling, unfocused commentary on what your goal is is to raise up characters, to raise strong trees that don't need you. Yeah. They really don't need the staking. Okay. Well, a fork in the road. We can yeah. either go on to adults. What do you do when you encounter adults and you have to work with adults in community? I'm thinking failure of nerve type stuff. Yeah. How do you get along with others who are not emotionally regulated in the same way institution wise, or I can transition into a question about music that we have stories or soul food applied to music. Uh, let's, I think adults is a pretty short answer, but we should, we should try to do both. Okay, great. Well, yeah. So obviously Friedman wrote a book called failure of nerve yep. about how uh, institutions work at the adult level and basically how we yeah. all think it's technique and data that helps you be a, an adult or a leader in a organization, whether you're talking school, church, you know, business. But instead he seems, he thinks that really it's just a question of whether you are reactive to others, emotional volatility, or whether as an adult, you maintain your own focus, right? Yeah. Your own, your own mission is, um, and, and also some of, some of his insights just seem to be things that you see over and over. So Friedman, for example, saying that people trying to sabotage or emotionally sabotage a good leader is something that happens by design or almost by nature of humanity. 
Yeah. Uh, as opposed to we tend to see, oh, there's conflict in an institution. That means something's wrong with the institution. It feel this feels related to our. It feels like the microcosm of the the backyard madness yeah. exploded onto a scale of you know, you know the the hundreds of backyards in your in your church, and now all of a sudden the parents are also in a bigger backyard. You know, let me let me couch this first for oneself, and I would just say, any adult living in community is encountering other adults who are failing. And they are failing themselves as well. And one of the most important things to do in all of this is to log success like and failure. Yeah. So not just confess your sins. When you sin against somebody, let them know, apologize, make it right. right. But also if you're in, because you're talking about applied to business and things like that. Yeah. When people are correct about something, I don't care who they are, when they're correct and you're incorrect, Make sure you tell them, make a practice of saying, hey, you were right. You're right, yeah. Because that living room lesson that happens with a three-year-old boy and a two-year-old sister and trying to make that boy say, I was wrong, is the hardest. It's the hardest thing to get a little boy and often little girls to do is to say, you were right, I was wrong. And that's, we practice that a ton. But it's still just, yeah, it's tough. And yeah. you need to practice it yourself too. So- yeah. There's all these times people are right and all these times you're wrong and notice those and acknowledge them and say it out loud. Mm. And that's really, really helpful. However, you will constantly deal with people when, when you are trying to do something and you're trying to do something excellent who seem to, to feel that their only calling in life is to hang on to people's ankles and be sandbags and obstruct and slow things down. <laughs> And it's because it's so easy and safe to be not sure. I don't know. I'm just not convinced. Again, that's that. That's the toddler in the living room becoming the judge. So somebody in the marketing department saying, I'm just not convinced. Yeah. Like, you know what? That's great. You don't have to be. No one has to convince you. <laughs> like, you know, like that's, nobody has right. to. And there's people who just feel like they have a role. Their role in the, in the actual group is to be the obstructor, the one who slows it down. Yeah. Um, buddy of mine recently, he had to give a presentation to a, a company and there's a bunch of people in the room. And he said, just even before we start, who's the person here? Who's just going to be the negative one. Who's just going to be resistant and, and, you know, and have a problem with everything I say, like before he said anything, who's that going to be? And everybody in the room recognized who it was. And that guy kind of hung his head and was like, yeah, you know, it's like, it's, People just he, he, had, he knew it was yeah, him. Yeah, he knew it was him. Everybody <laughs> in the room knew it was him. They didn't even know what the presentation was yet. And they knew <laughs> he's going to be the one that has all the problems. Interesting. Um, and that's because that's what people are like. They yeah. have a, they adopt yeah. a role. They raise their hand and say, I'm going to be the one who fusses. I'm going to be the one who yeah. has a problem. I'm going to be the one who has concerns. I'm going to be the one who's anxious or aggressive or whatever. The problem is that when you do actually really succeed and you start to achieve you will get more friction and more resistance and more conflict than if you're mediocre. Like mm -hmm. mediocrity is kind of like 70 degrees and no wind. Yeah. When you actually bring heat, you get storm systems. You get, you get friction, <laughs> you get friction, you get yeah. people who don't like it. And if you're right, they like it even less. Mm -hmm. So it's, you actually get more and more and more conflict, the yeah. more successful you are. And this is just the nature of anything. So in inside of a system, one guy is like, hey, I've got this idea. And other people are like, I'm just not convinced. And the boss is like, run with it. And when he comes back and it's a monster and it really mm -hmm. is taking off, there's, there's really only a couple ways the other people as characters in the movie, as characters in the novel, a couple ways they can play it. The rarest of all is for them to come say, you were right, I was wrong. That's, yeah. that's the risk. This is exciting. Yeah. This was all your idea. Great job. Right. Um, the, the next thing that happens is lots of kibitzing around the side, lots of complaining and they're doing it wrong. Yes, it's successful, but they're not understanding. They're missing the target, whatever. There's lots of little kibitzing around the edges. Uh, and then one of the other normal human reactions is like, I always thought this was going to work. <laughs> this was amazing. I was always yeah. on board. So glad we thought of this. <laughs> and they immediately start trying to get become a shareholder in the success. Mm -hmm. And it's really, it's really funny. Uh, 
learning how to create these little release valves for people to do that. Yeah, because so, they get they do get to be part of the success. Yeah, you but know, you, in the institution. yeah, but just but just letting stuff slide when when people are like, I'm so glad we thought of this. You're like, yeah, great. And you just <laughs> do I need? Is there any upside in me saying you didn't think of this? I thought of this, and you thought it was. It's like sometimes you actually need to have that conversation, but a lot of times yeah. not. And I I learned, um, I think we've talked about sports and coaching and stuff. It's coaching track has taught me a lot about this because it's far more objective than basketball and basketball has its objectivity, but people can sit in the stands and not understand and, and miss stuff because they're not looking at the analytics the same way, but track and they, they should look at the analytics. And I, I log uh, stuff pretty heavily so that I can explain to people why I'm making the decisions I'm making because they want to know why Johnny's not playing more, mm -hmm. but with track, it's just speed yeah let's go run let's see who's fast and when you start really pushing when you start really pushing people to excel and get faster it's really hard for people to just take an objective like pursuit of success and then specifically with like my four by 400 relay team um girls and guys four fastest run the four fastest run. And there's like, well, when we do time trials and practice as a four, you know, if you've got an open time, if you've got a split time, another four by 400 and just setting boundaries and rules and just being like the four fastest people are going to run. That's immediately going to create as they pursue excellence, a storm system. You know, it's immediately going to create it, which is healthy and good. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really healthy and good because then I tell the people who want to be on the four by four team, I tell them run faster and you can have her spot run faster and you can have his spot. And I tell the person who's got that spot, they're going to try to take your spot. Yeah. And it's all very, let's all be yeah. friendly about this. Hey, let's, you try to beat them and you try to beat them and let's all do it together. And let's all laugh at the same time. And whoever's fastest by the time we get to state is running. Yeah. And it's just this competition. Now, I will tell you that we get way better because of that. Everyone gets better. Right. In a business, if you actually ventilate the storm system, if you ventilate the, the conflict and the tension and all the friction around success, it can make everyone better. Yeah. You know, if you're talking to a marketing department and you're actually telling Henry, you know, so you thought this wasn't going to work and you know, Jake made it awesome and it was fantastic. Yeah. But now's your shot, Henry, to do something better than he did. It's like, <laughs> yeah, he's winning. Yeah. You know, it's like if yeah. it is, if it is really open, but we're all winning. But now you're now's your chance to call a play and run something and see if you can yeah. see if you can be in charge of the big campaign next time. Yeah. That that honesty of competition, really forthright honesty of competition, can be far more effective rather than what actually happens, which which is a lot of back channeling. And a lot mm -hmm. of like people talking in the corner and being like, well, you know, you, maybe you can have it next time, but mm -hmm. you know, it'll be your turn. And they, and people get these different rules, these mm -hmm. weird egalitarian rules of opportunity and turns and, yeah. and everything else, instead of just, let's all sit in the same room and talk openly about competing with each other right? and be openly supportive of the overall mission. Yeah. You know, like, let's just really, that, that let's, connects, let's do that. And that, it's hard to do that. Yeah. It's very yeah. hard to do that. It's much easier to revert to the whispering in the back channels and manipulation and a boss who's un, you know like undercutting an employee over here for the sake of somebody else's feelings over there. Yeah. And just and playing all these games, which is so toxic and right. just falls right. apart. Yeah. One the way Friedman describes that is that we are in the age of the quick fix, which is always defined as releasing discomfort. Yeah, and that the path to success is, and we've as we've talked about many times for characters in books and in life is through discomfort, always, and the ability to stay on path even when it hurts or on track even when yep. it hurts. That's that's there is the, no comfortable road to greatness. Yeah, ever, it just ever, it doesn't exist. So there's there's just not one. And if somebody pitches you one, they're lying. Yeah. So yeah, and that seems to. Uh, whether you're talking to dad or in a business or even in a church, that a leader with a vision on where you need to go is going to have five bazillion things to distract them. 
you know, a dad is going to just get distracted by a billion things. Yeah. <laughs> um, as opposed to trying to keep 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 eyes on the long game of where yeah. where is this supposed to end? Where's yep. this is supposed to end at Mount Doom, right? So let's not get distracted. <laughs> yeah. And I, I will say also circling all the way back to the beginning of what the, the question was, applying that no comfortable road to greatness principle to your house. There is no comfortable road for you, the dad, for you, the mom, to having a great family. There's no comfortable road. Mm, that's good. And you got to think about the discomfort being yours. Like you own that discomfort. You shoulder that discomfort. And so, um, dad, you're tired. You're beat. Like you're exhausted. You've had you've you've had some trouble. You know, like really being fun with your kids. Like being anything other than law. There's been no. There's been no grace or joy or anything. It's like, man, it's jammy ride time. I mean, it's like, right. Like you're tired. So what you want to sit down and watch a show. So what wake your kids up, put them in the car in their pajamas and take them out for ice cream. Right. You know, it's like, do like, do things like that, that are hard. Don't just do it when, Hey, I feel in my kind of like manic mood swings, I feel happy. Like, let's go do a happy right. thing. I feel sad. Let's do a sad thing. Yeah. It's like, no, you have, you're consciously constructing a childhood. Right. And we, you are the one walking in the door and you're deciding like, what's the scene tonight? Yeah. What are we doing? Am I going to wrestle with kids and play with them? And it's going to be a blast. You're like, am I going to, am I going to go roll around in the grass or am I going to pass out? Cause it was a long day. Yeah. And my wife hasn't spoken to it, an adult. Yeah. <laughs> for the past 12 hours. <laughs> yep. Exactly. And here comes one adult through the door who's not ready to talk. <laughs> yep. Exactly. And uh, in that situation, of course, the wife just needs to suck it up. Yep. <laughs> That's a brick to the forehead. No. <laughs> no, it's it's actually really, that is one of the funniest and hardest and most comedic scenes that there is. Right. Is she's, she's been working hard with very uh, low conversation. <laughs> And most people who can't speak and he, English. And he comes in with empty batteries. And right. he's like, and yeah. And then he's not going to uh, shall we say, measure up. Right. In that in that moment. It's not gonna work. But it is in terms of it being uncomfortable and difficult for your kids to be able to look back and remember a well-ordered but completely joyful home. Like a well-ordered but joyful childhood and lots yeah. of pleasure and lots of humor and lots of party time. Like their memories being like, man, this was great. They don't have tons of memories of just yeah fighting each other. Right. You know, it's like, or just constantly discipline. Um, you know, like it's actually, their memories are all that. That doesn't just happen. It takes a lot of hard work and sacrifice and willingness to do the thing for the scene in which you're in. As opposed to do the thing which will feel good for you right. individually. Yeah. So that is, and then that carries through all the way through adulthood and everything else. Always, always make the choice that is best for the scene. Right. And makes the best scene, the best dialogue, the best characters. Yeah. Not the thing that makes you the most comfortable. It, it makes sense for this podcast that you would turn for the reasoning proof to stories, like what makes a good story. Friedman, yeah. obviously or maybe not obviously, but Friedman turns to evolution and yeah. he's like a differentiated yep. survival of the differentiated, right? And I, I'm just curious, what, is that just common law grace that he's picking up on there? Maybe he just knows people. Yeah, I he's just, I just psychology. Yeah, okay. He's just so accurate about it, but so far off when he starts yeah. talking about the wisest lizard in a group of lizards or whatever. <laughs> it's like, it's almost, it's comedic. <laughs> yeah. It gets, it gets pretty funny, but he does have a, he's like Balaam. He's an unbelieving prophet. He does have right. a lot of real insight. Yeah. Uh, but his, his understanding of what makes the insight true is weird. Right. Like when he tries to explain why it's true, then the wheels come off a little bit, yeah. but it is, uh, I, th I think I have thought, and I've encouraged other people to think that if you are reading the life stories of your kids, like you're reading their life stories, which you are, you're sitting here influencing the early chapters, the very early chapters. These characters get to say, man, when I was little, my mom used to fill in the blank. My dad used to fill in the blank. My dad used to come home so grumpy and just turn on the TV. Right. You know, like my mom used to 
lose control of her emotions and be all over the place and just cry and yell at my dad when he got home. Like my mom used to like, there's all these different things that you can lace into those early chapters of somebody's life story. And if you know stories, then from there you say, what is this character going to become? If you're reading the early chapters and this is what their dad's like, this is what their mom is like. What's what's coming. Yeah. My dad used to always promise us stuff, and then it never worked out. Mm, that's a brutal one. What's what's coming? My my dad um, was obsessed with money. You know, my my dad was uh, so uptight with cash, like he would never let us eat out. You know, like it's like all all this kind of all that kind of thing. Um, or you know. My parents had so little money that we had to eat, you know, peanut butter sandwiches in the airport, but they saved, they saved all summer to take us somewhere. You know, it's like, that's, there's a very, there's just very different impacts. Mm, like and so if you, if you think about what, same situation, but different impacts, what yeah. kind of a, what kind of a character has a dad like you? Yeah. Like what kind of a figure in history has a mom like you? And that is like, that actually is pretty sobering <laughs> you know, that's a pretty sobering thing like yeah okay so if you call out your flaws if you call out the worst things that you do and your worst habits and the way you are because you feel like it because you're in your feels because you had a long day and then you just mark their days with those outbursts or with whatever it is um man like the characters it creates on the other side always make sense they're always those characters yeah, they do. those characters that are created always cohere with those early chapters in the way their parents treated them the way their parents were there's there's not a moment where it's like my dad was abusive and my mom was an alcoholic and i turned out wildly stable like without a without a wild conversion scene or something that comes later like that just divine intervention what is that what does that lead to? Where does it go? Where do daddy issues go? We all know where daddy yeah. issues go. Where does an overbearing mother go in somebody's life story? Like where does an erratic emotional mother go in somebody's life story? And God is God and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit and he can intervene however he wants and he, you know. Right. He makes something from nothing all the time. So there's grace intervening yeah, later. Yeah, there's hope. It's not, that's not. No, it's not hopelessness. Yeah. But you have to, you have to assume that what you're lacing into these early chapters, into these early scenes for your kids, you have to assume that they will have natural, they will, they will bear natural fruit. They will actually bear fruit in their later lives. And that fruit will match the root. It will match the seed that you planted. Yeah. Like apart from divine intervention. That's how it goes. And so really try to, uh, circling all the way back to that first question of your kids aren't great characters. Mm -hmm. All that means is that you're not. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it just it just means the parents aren't great characters. Yeah. And the, the parents need to focus on trying to be great characters in their children's lives. Yeah. The kind of parents that their kids could stand up and be so grateful for, you know, by a grave yeah. sometime down the, you know, down the road. And it's, it's, uh, the solution. Usually the answers are pretty obvious. Like, Hey, you're so wound up. Yeah. You got to chill out because it's stressing everybody in your home out. You're yep. an anxious place, you know, but, uh, oftentimes asking somebody to tell you that obvious thing can be, can be quite the character. Yeah. The character opener and <laughs> trying to, trying to receive that. Yeah. And especially when just, it has to do with kids, man. No, just that's, think that's, yeah. that's tough. Think, think about how <laughs> think about how well, especially even more if it has to do with you. Think about how terrifying a friend would find it if if you reached out and were like, hey, you know, I'm really not happy with the way that my children are right now. <laughs> what do you see in me that's causing this? What do yeah. you see in me that that is you know, doing this. How terrified is your friend to actually answer that question honestly? <laughs> yeah, you know, we we can probably get better. <laughs> yeah, so and <laughs> doing mom, this more and mom, <laughs> mom doing that. You know, a mom asking a female friend or a sister. Oh boy, that's a whole another level. You know, it's yeah. like honestly, if you, you're sitting there knowing if I answer that question honestly, we might never speak again. 
Yeah. Because frequently your friends know and they're just terrified. Yeah. You know, they're just, they're just terrified of telling you the truth and, th- and really think about that because think about them saying something really hurtful, like hurtful, meaning it hurts, not hurtful, meaning yeah. it's mean because you asked for it and incorrect. Let's say they're wrong. Like, but they, but their assessment of you and how you are was still like, Ooh, that's pretty scathing. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to just not be hurt by it and I'm going to weigh it and consider it and take the good I can find out of it and then move on. Yeah. Um, that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Mm-mm. And I don't, I don't know that a lot of people have those relationships that are capable of doing that. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's probably the hardest, the hardest thing. So ideally, if you have those kind of conversations, you have them early and often you have this on a recurring basis such that it's small stuff. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not like, oh, I, it's not I the saw one. my friend, I saw my friend being a terrible mom, being a terrible dad for years and never said anything. It's like, there's little things where it's like, hey man, uh, just FYI, you know, there's a little thing here. Let me know. I've, I've noticed some things. Let me know if you want to hear it. You know, just don't even force it on them. And if they ask, you got to like, hopefully you've, you've <laughs> built up the relationship that you can, you can say those things. Yeah. But it's, that's wild. I mean, it's just wildly difficult. And I think even more important than that is just extending grace to people constantly, including, right. uh, especially your kids. Right. So, yeah, I think that's, man, that's, that's fruit of the spirit when that can happen. You know, a Christian community where people can say, Hey, you screwed up there and you take it. I mean, that seems to be. Yep. Outside of the Christian community, we get generational feuds yeah. <laughs> over that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But honestly, saying these things is is brutal. And if you're asked or if you're not asked and you really feel like you need to let somebody know, you're like, hey, I see you driving toward a cliff. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you something. If you tell them that and they drive off the cliff, the conversations don't get easier. Like having been right about that does not make mm-hmm. them come back to you. And you can be helpful. Um, but worse than that is when they drive off a cliff and you saw it coming and you never said something. Mm-hmm. Like to have to have never said anything is is a much worse situation. Yeah. So Doesn't the Bible's got those two proverbs, right? The one about the guy who runs around with flaming arrows, and then also the faithful are the wounds of a friend. Yep. So you kind of gotta balance those two. Yeah, let's not be the flaming arrow guy. <laughs> Although kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, wait, is that what we're supposed to be <laughs> yeah. aiming for? But I'm honestly, and this is where we should just end it, is like always focus on yourself. Like always focus on yourself first. So yep. kids, mm-hmm. friends, whatever, friend has a problem, kids, friend has a problem, your kids have a problem, focus on yourself. Yeah. There's- where can you be better as a character in their scenes? Where can you be better as a side character, as a supporting character, yeah. as a Discomfort. As an ally? Discomfort is yep. the only path. And take the hard road. To greatness. Take the hard road to greatness in any category, including being a great friend. Yeah. You're, if you're, if it's just easy, if it was always just easy, then you weren't a great friend. Right. Or so, the favorite quote, if it was easy, everyone would do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So whoever said that. I don't know who said it. There we go. This has been our uh, SASF excursus in unprepared parenting tips. Yeah. Very disorganized. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> I need to have more specific examples for this. Oh, music. Questions. We're going to talk about music. Do it. Just next time. No, next I don't time. I don't want to do it next time. What is it? I, the, I mean, the At question. At least tease it. The question is just how to, basically someone heard you quote secular music and <gasps> we're thinking, I like being able to listen to secular music. Secular music. How do you do music with your family? Because mm. they've heard both you and your dad quote secular music, in fact. We do it perfectly. Well, in fact, we've even had a book with Johnny Cash lyrics. Yeah. As the title. Um, well, I think we pretty much almost, not exclusively, but like 95% secular music. Yeah. So, yeah. There's only so much Chris Rice you can take. Before. Because we are, pers- we pursue stuff that's fun and appropriate to the moment. And so while we love handle and we love, you know, some of the top shelf stuff, Chris Rice. <laughs> There's, there is, uh, if we're looking for lunch music, vacuuming music, cleaning music, things like that. There's, there's things that are fun to do the dishes to things that bounce things that are 
things that are fun. Friday night pizza night has yeah. to have a a playlist prep. So most of just the music that goes, there's there's folk music and other things too, but most of the music that goes is just fun. And then there's uh higher there's higher level stuff. But fun that does not attack you. You know, it's like we're not listening to things that fun are, that you don't have to filter. Yeah, the and there's, chunks you know, there it, are you radio know. edit versions of songs that we would play or things like that, but it's there's not stuff that we would have on that's singing um, adoringly about uh, the the things we actually hate, yeah. you know, the things that we're opposed to or things that hate us. My kids listen to a lot of country music. You know, they do, they do kind of keep tabs on the country music and that is... Uh, not a surprise to me, but it's not like we play it in the home, really. It's a thing that they all kind of share together in the car is like the country radio station. Hence, and, they, and they laugh uh, at a lot of it. They, you know, a lot of it's yeah, fancy silly like. and yeah. fancy like is to laugh at. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. So that, that kind of, that kind of thing, but that's, that's a very short answer, but it's I mean, not. The, the real short answer is just music and stories. You can assess them the same way. We don't listen to just explicitly faith. Yeah, well, let, let me put it this way. Most of the hamburgers we eat are also secular. As are the chips. Most of them secular. A few blessed. But yeah, well, we pray over them always. But <laughs> but the the fact is that sacred secular divide is a really, really slippery, unhelpful one. It's a silly one. Yeah. So most most of the music we listen to is as secular as the hot dogs we eat. So mm. That's good. There we go. This has been Sasf. You know that now is the time when I like to thank you for being a Sasf listener and also show you something cool that we've been working at uh, at Canna Press. And what I'm holding right now, if you can, or if you're only listening in audio, you won't be able to see this. You'll have to listen to the sound. But if you're watching on Canon Plus and if you're a subscriber, you can see I'm holding a Christ is Lord box. Go to ChristIsLord.com to see why we're trying to put up a billboard that says Christ is Lord in your area and why that's making certain sad sections of the internet very upset. Of course, it's true. And so we got some fun stuff inside. Again, if you're just listening, hear the wonderful sounds. We got stickers. We got bumper stickers. We have, yeah, they say Christ is Lord too. We've got a wartime songbook, but of course, the most important part of this box is the Mere Christendom book, which I have to say is one of the most pretty books you're going to see. Check out that foil on the cover, the elegant cross on it, and of course, a signature from Douglas Wilson. What is Mere Christendom? Well, basically, it's the declaration of the book that Christ conquered the West the first time, and this is how he's going to do it again. So, Christislord.com, buy the book, check out the billboards and enjoy.